Good morning to you all. So again, good to be here, and I'm excited to learn a bit more through the book of Revelation. I hope you are too. Today's going to be fun. It might feel a bit more like a classroom, uh, but we're going to learn a lot together, and I do think it's going to be uh, relevant to how we continue to live our lives. And today, we're going to be studying the seven seals of Revelation. Seven seals, yeah. Okay, not those seals, Dean. Not those either. There we go. That's better. The seals that you would see on a scroll. I always, whenever I, I read about the seven seals in my mind, I go, or, or, or. So then I uh, have to recenter myself before studying the Word of God. The seals that would have been on a scroll, much as you would see in that picture. And, and these seals and the scroll were held by the one who was on the throne. So we are immediately reminded of the vision that we learned from last week, that throne room vision. And John was given this glimpse into heaven, and he saw this dazzling, beautiful, and and amazingly powerful, awesome throne and one who sat upon it. And the one who sits on the throne had a scroll completely full on front and back in his hands. And the scroll was to bring about all of creation to its desired completion. But it was sealed And there was no one worthy in heaven or on earth to open those seals, to open the scroll, to bring creation to where God intended it to be. And then John heard a voice say, there is one who is worthy. It is the Lion of Judah. He has conquered. He has overcome. And John turned around and instead of seeing a lion, he saw a lamb that had been slain. And this slain lamb, Jesus, in the midst of the throne, then takes the scroll from the one who is seated on the throne. And as we continue in Revelation chapter 6, it is the same vision just further on because now the Lamb has the scroll and he begins to unseal it and to bring creation to its desired end where everyone is created, all of creation is worshiping God. This is what we are learning together today. And the first four seals are what we have now come to dub the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is a a pretty nice way of saying things. And we've already uh, established at the outset that the word apocalypse just means revelation. So it, again, is not necessarily talking about a future event. And these four horsemen, while they are, are certainly have a role to play in revelation, it's not the first time we encounter this in prophetic imagery. In fact, you can go back to Zechariah 1 and 6 on your own time and realize that there are four horsemen there that are also uh, connected to God's judgment. And so God is, again, revealing these things truthfully to John in much the same way he would have revealed them to Zechariah. John is using much the same language. These four horsemen are not something brand new. They're part of that Old Testament narrative between God and his people and that prophetic legacy. And then we have the first seal opened, and the first horseman is a white horse with a rider who has a bow, and he's coming to conquer. And this is going to be very anticlimactic, but I want to let you know that we don't really know exactly what that first horse represents. There's a lot of different ideas out there. Uh, There's a lot of different um, explanations, but there is not much consensus. So we are going to have a sermon Q&A again at the end of our sermon time. And so this might be one of the questions you may want to ask. In fact, Dean, is it possible to just go and show that QR code real quick? I might have skipped over it again, as I tend to do. 
And uh, so you can use your phones to scan the QR code or you can uh, type in the, the, the code that's available on screen. We'll put this up again at the end. But you might want to say, hey, what's the deal with the first horse? And I could give you some potential ideas at that time. But we're, for now, we're going to move on because as we see, once we go through all the horsemen, it will make sense in totality. The second seal unveils a red horse with a rider and a sword. And this is much easier to understand. This horse and rider represents war, violence, bloodshed being done on the earth. And all of these horses are being sent down to creation. The third seal represents a black horse and a rider with a pair of scales. And the scales it's talking about are scales that you would use for trade. It represents the economy, but things aren't going well in the economy. This is more to do with economic disaster, and we know that as we continue to read the explanation that comes with it. They say, this is John hears, he sees the, the rider with the scales, and he hears a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Well, a denarius would have been a full day's wage, and so what we hear is that the, the price of food is sky high. Like, not, oh, Canadian inflation in 2022 high. Oh, it's pretty, groceries are getting pretty expensive. This is, I can't afford to feed my family type of food prices brought on by, by famine and by this war and by this bloodshed. This is economic disaster. It's bringing about death, which of course brings us to that fourth seal. A pale horse who is death himself and Hades or the grave follows in its wake. And death kills with the sword and with famine and with pestilence or plague. And so when we look at all of the four horsemen and what they represent, we can conclude by saying they um, talk about war, famine, and plague as being promised by the first four seals that we have here. War, famine, and plague. And as much uh, of Revelation is, is inspired by what we see in, in, in the prophets. This is also the case here. In Ezekiel 14, 21, we read this, which I think is, is very important. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, four acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. War, famine, and plague. And we're probably slightly less worried about wild beasts today than they were back in those days. But this is what the horsemen are talking about. But what's important here is that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are not referring to a specific future event. Instead, war, famine, and plague are things that are happening, that have been happening ever since John's time, ever since the Lamb was exalted to be in the midst of the throne and to open these seals, war, famine, and plague were a reality then. They continue to be a reality today, and they will continue to be a reality until Jesus comes again. This is explaining the way that the world is right now. And we don't have to look far for some pretty compelling examples. War. You know, when I saw Putin act aggressively and, and build up along the Ukrainian border, I thought to myself, he won't actually invade. I mean, we must have, as a world, we must have learned our lesson that we can't just go and invade another sovereign nation like that. We've, we've come further than that, haven't we? Have we come any further, church? No, of course not. War is an ever-present reality in the world today. 
And then famine is something that we feel insulated from, largely, because we are, are, are affluent and we're in the first world and we, we, we are protected from famine, but we should not kid ourselves into knowing that, that famine is a very real danger and there are people starving in different parts of the world. And yet even with all of our insulation from that, we have seen in the past number of years an incredible year-long drought in the southwest United States that has dropped water levels to record lows and is threatening that food supply chain. Or the extreme heat that we saw in Europe, which caused a number of people to die and for that, that food supply to be limited as well. Famine is still part of our experience. And then there's the plague. Ah, man, I, just, I thought and thought and I couldn't think of an example for this. If only we could be convinced that plague was still a problem in our world. I don't know. Okay, so COVID-19, I think, was a very compelling argument that still these microscopic viruses can come and upset the entire world at the same time. Church, the four horsemen, are the reality that we live in. But the promise here is not that you will just have these things, not that you will experience the suffering. Yes, this is going to happen, but it's going to happen with our revelation mindset, which means that Jesus is still the ruler of the kings of the earth. We read that in Revelation 1. So even as they make war with one another, Jesus is an authority over them. We know also that Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades, another thing we read in Revelation 1. So even as the horsemen of death and Hades run around the world, that, that Jesus still has authority over them. He is in control. And we know that the horsemen come about because Jesus is the one opening the seals of the scroll that will bring creation to where God wants it to be. So this suffering and this hardship of war and famine and plague not just, doesn't just describe our reality, but it gives us a bigger perspective. It's for a reason. It's for a purpose. It is still somehow part of God's plan. And because of that, there is hope. Do not lose hope. When we get to the fifth seal, the nature of the story changes. The fifth seal represents the martyrs. I want to read for you verses 9 and 11 of Revelation 6, which, by the way, you can keep open. Uh, chapter 6 and 7 is where we'll camp out today. 6 verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These are the martyrs. These are those who had lost their lives because of their commitment to worshiping Jesus Christ and Christ alone. What we can again call radical discipleship you should never be swayed. You should never be deterred. You should never worship anyone else. As Taylor reminded us, Revelation is a book of praise, but it's a, part, it's a book of wholehearted praise, committed praise. And for those who, again, were listening to these words for the first time, martyrdom was near at hand. I guarantee you that as they would listen to the words of John's revelation uh, be read in their church setting, that they would have known, personally known, loved ones who had been killed for their belief in Jesus. And they also would have heard these words knowing that it was a very likely possibility that they too would join that no those number of martyrs in heaven. This was the backdrop to the book. 
And again, we have sought to put our minds and our hearts in what the original hearers of these words would have understood. I had a chance in, in seminary to take an early Christianity course, and we read some of the early writings found of the early church. And there was one that stood out to me that I want to share with you. It's called the Acts of the Silitan Martyrs. It is the oldest Christian document to survive in North Africa. The Latin account of the Silitan Martyrs provides an actual trial narrative of 12 Christians in Carthage under the proconsul Saturninus in the year 180 CE. So 90 years after Revelation was written to the persecuted church, the fate of the church is not doing much better. They are still required by law to worship the emperor as divine. And if they refuse to do so, then they are also compelled under the law to be put to death. Ninety years later, and I want to read this for you, and this is not a play. These are 12 real people who were under a real trial, and this is what happened. In the consulship of Praesens for the second time in Claudian, on the 17th day of July, there was arraigned at Carthage in the governor's chambers, Spiritus, Narzulus, Sitinus, Feturius, Felix, Aquilinus, Latanius, January, Generosa, Donata, Secunda, and Vestia. And we don't name our children the same way anymore. Then the proconsul, the Roman authority, Saturninus, said, If you return to your senses, <laughs> you can obtain the pardon of our lord, the emperor. Spiritus said, We have never done wrong. We have never lent ourselves to wickedness. Never have we uttered a curse, but when abused, we have given thanks, for we hold our own emperor in honor. Saturninus, the proconsul, said, We too are a religious people, and our religion is a simple one. We swear by the genius of our lord, the emperor. The genius here means divine spirit. We swear to the divine spirit. We worship the divinity of our emperor, and we offer prayers for his health, and you also ought to do so. Spiritus said, if you will give me a calm hearing, I shall tell you the mystery of simplicity. If you begin to malign our sacred rites, said Saturninus, I shall not listen to you, but swear rather by the genius of our Lord the Emperor. Spiritus said, I do not recognize the empire of this world. <laughs> rather, I serve the God whom no one has seen nor can see with these eyes. I have not stolen and on any purchase I pay the tax, for I acknowledge my Lord, who is the emperor of kings and of all nations. The proconsul Saturninus said to the others, cease to be of this persuasion. I like <laughs> Cease to be of this persuasion. Knock it off. One of the things I find in here is the proconsul doesn't want to sentence these people. Spiritus said, it is an evil persuasion to commit murder or to bear false witness. Saturninus, the proconsul, said, have no part in this folly. Sitinus said, we have no one else to fear but our Lord God who is in heaven. Donatus said, pay honor to Caesar as Caesar, but it is God we fear. Vestius said, I am a Christian. Secundus said, I wish to be what I am. The proconsul Saturninus said to Spiritus, do you persist in remaining a Christian? Spiritus said, I am a Christian, and all agreed with him. Saturninus, the proconsul said, you wish no time for consideration. Spiritus said, but in so just a matter, there is no need for consideration. The proconsul Saturninus said, what have you in your case? Spiritus said, books and letters of a just man named Paul. This comes before the Bible was even canonized, carrying around the letters of Paul in his briefcase. The proconsul Saturninus said, you are granted a reprieve of 30 days. Think it over. Think it over. 
Once again, Sparitus said, I am a Christian. And with him, all the others agreed. Saturninus, the proconsul, read his decision from a tablet. Whereas the accused have confessed that they have been living in accordance with the rights of the Christians, and whereas though given the opportunity to return to the usage of the Romans, they have persevered in their obstinacy, they are hereby condemned to be executed by the sword. Spirit has said, we thank God. Nartilus said today, we are the martyrs in heaven. Thanks be to God. They all said thanks be to God, and straight away they were beheaded for the name of Christ. So when we read of the martyrs, it seems far away for us, but it was home for them. It was their life, it was their death, and it was their hope. And as this group of Christians, 90 years later, marched to the executioner, they knew that they would join this group of martyrs, willingly giving up their life, to persevere in the obstinacy of worshiping Jesus, knowing that they would join this group whose number has yet to come to completion, crying out to God for vengeance and justice because it seems so unfair. Is there any way that this can be put right? And of course it is. But how we treat our enemies and how God treats our enemies are two different things. It is not up to us to bring justice. It's not up to us to right the wrongs. That is God's. In fact, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, quoted three different times in Scripture. It is his job to right these wrongs. It is his job to be perfectly just. It is his job to do this. The way of the lamb is to turn the other cheek, to give the shirt off our back, to go the extra mile, and to willingly lay down our lives for what we believe and for the sake of others, just as Jesus has done for us. So the first five seals are all about the here and the now. It's about the reality of war, of famine and plague. It's about the ongoing weight of the martyrs who are still crying out for justice and waiting for God to move. All of creation, the Bible tells us, is groaning for that day of the Lord and the return of Jesus when these things will finally be made right. And then, and then we have the sixth seal where God answers these calls for justice and creation itself unravels. I can't explain it. We have to read it together, picking up in Revelation 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? Now we are looking to the future. Now we see that there's a huge jump in time from the fifth seal to the sixth, and God has now answered the cries of the martyrs. He has answered the prayers of his people. He has ushered in the day of the Lord, and his judgment has come. 
And creation itself comes undone. And again, I I have about eight different cross-references I could give you, but just know that all of those images we have seen before in Scripture, because John is using imagery or being shown imagery used from Isaiah, Joel, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Jesus' own teaching in in the Gospel of Matthew. This seal takes us to the very end, as so often happens in Revelation. We are at the end, new heaven and new earth, in the end of chapter 5. We are at the end at the end of chapter 6. We'll be at the end at the end of chapter 7. We are always given that last glimpse of where our hope lies. God has heard the cries of the martyrs and brought justice, finally and eternally. And then there is the seventh and final seal. And we have to go all the way to Revelation chapter 8 to encounter it. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it down to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The seventh seal begins with silence. And what is that silence for? This is another open mystery, a question we can't answer quite definitively. One explanation that I like is that this heaven could be silent in order to hear the prayers of the saints. The altar that's being talked about here is the altar of incense in the temple. And on the earthly temple, they would burn incense in the presence of God at all times. In the heavenly temple, the incense is the prayers of God's people. And because we're talking about the seals, we know that these prayers of God's people are the call for justice. And the angel then takes fire from these prayers and throws it down to earth with the accompanying symbols of God's judgment, letting us know that God has heard his people and God will act. Those are the seven seals. And yet there is this interjection. We had to skip all the way to Revelation 8 to get to the seventh and final seal. And Revelation 7 is firmly in the middle. It's, a, it's an interjection. It's an additional vision, but it is still connected to the seven seals. When we read the end of chapter 6 together, it left us with a question. For the great day of the wrath of the Lamb and the one on the throne has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? Revelation 6 gives us this question. And Revelation 7 will answer this question. And it brings us great comfort and joy in the midst of God's judgment. Here are the first four verses of Revelation 7. After this, John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it lists the sealed by tribe. So how can we understand this? Well, there are, at the outset, four angels, four corners, four winds. And if you remember, what does the number four symbolize in, in Hebrew mindset in the book of Revelation? What does the number four? Anyone remember? Come on. It's creation. Four is the number of creation, the four living creatures. Now we have the four angels, the four corners, the four winds. And we know from the prophet Zechariah that the four horsemen are the four winds. They are one and the same. This is Zechariah chapter 6. 
one of those passages where John gets this imagery from. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from behind, between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered, and I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The four horsemen are the four winds. And why does this matter? Because we have to ask ourselves when, when we have this interjection in Revelation 7, when does this take place? Because in, 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 the, in the narrative, in, in the book, it takes in between, it's place in between seal 6 and seal 7. But if the four horsemen are the four winds, then what is actually happening is taking place right before any of the seals have been opened. This is an important point. Revelation is not chronological. You can't read it from cover to cover and say this happens and then this happens and this happens. It doesn't work that way. But we know this to be true in other ways. So for example, I am on Disney Plus. I'm trying to catch up in my Marvel Cinematic Universe watching. And they make a lot of shows and movies. But I found something really handy. Actually, on Disney Plus, if you go to the Marvel section, they will have all of the MCU offerings listed in um, timeline order. Because if you were to watch it as they came out, they would have this part of the story and then that part of the story and then that part of the story. They don't tell it in order, but they can order it for you. And so I've enjoyed watching it that way. Revelation is not written in timeline order. It's not chronological, but time is incredibly important. We have to ask ourselves to seek to give Revelation its own voice. When is this happening? What is being reflected or represented in this vision? And the four angels or the four winds, or the four horsemen, this sealing of people takes place before the seven seals are opened. And then there is this angel that comes out of the east and has the seal of the living God. And I know you're thinking along with me, what in the world is the seal of the living God? Well, the seal that we're talking about here is later described as the name of the Lamb and of God. That happens in Revelation 14. So the name of the Lamb and the name of God is written or sealed on the foreheads of his people, in Revelation. This seal denotes ownership. God says, I have called you by name. You are mine. You belong to me, says the one on the throne. You belong to me, says the lamb. And this seal represents that. This seal guarantees it. Part of this ownership is being saved the severe judgment of God, which is why it happens when it does, saying before the day of the Lord comes, we are going to seal God's people. There is an interesting passage in Ezekiel 9. You can go back on your own time if you want to. Write down, read Ezekiel 9. And it talks there uh, about God telling the prophet Ezekiel that he will seal the people on their foreheads and that that will save them the severe judgment that is one day coming. But of course, this idea is not new to Ezekiel as well. It takes us back even further to that often retold redemptive story of the people of Israel and their exodus from slavery in Egypt. And at that great and terrible night of the tenth and final plague, where the angel of death came and took the life of the firstborn, it was true of every household except for the people of God who were commanded to take the blood of a slain lamb, put it on their doorposts, and that would be their mark. That would be their seal that the angel of death would pass over because these are God's people. They are sealed with the blood of the lamb. But looking further into the New Testament, I believe a good argument can be made that the seal that we're talking about is none other than the Holy Spirit. 
I want to bring Paul into this conversation. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13. He says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you believe in the truth of Jesus, when you are, are, are cleansed by the blood of the slain lamb, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So if we want to think creatively, you could say that the seal is the name of the Father and the Son, and it is written in the ink of the Holy Spirit. God has marked you. He said, you are mine. You are sealed. You are guaranteed that inheritance. You are passed over. That is the seal of the living God. But then who are the 144,000 that would re receive such a thing? Well, when we get to that part of Revelation 7, you recognize that John is writing this down, all these people getting sealed. He's writing it like a census from the Old Testament of all the males who are battle-ready, who are battle-worthy. And if you want, you can go back to Numbers 1, and you'll see exactly what I mean. He's writing it like a census. And, and as we continue to explore the book of Revelation together, we will know for certain that holy battle is a big part of what is going on, part of what, what John is preparing the church for, part of what we need to be prepared for. This is written like a census before a battle. But there's 144,000, and some people have taken this number and this, uh, this passage to be literal. So... Some say there is literally 144,000 that will receive this seal. The mo most common example of this is the Jehovah Witnesses who believe that only 144,000 people get to go to heaven. That is a set literal number of those who are redeemed from this earth who get to go to heaven. There are others, and many even evangelical circles, who will say that the 144,000 may be a symbolic number, but it is literal in its ethnicity. This is referring to ethnic Jews or Jewish Christians only because it's listed in tribes. Even though liberties have been taken, you'll notice that the tribe of Dan is missing and it's been replaced by Manasseh. I don't think either of those explanations are what is best when we give Revelation its own voice. And let me tell you why. Because later on in Revelation 14, where we have another additional information of the who is sealed, all of the descriptors of those who are sealed are used of God's people, all of God's people elsewhere in Scripture. So in order to understand this, let's go to Revelation 14. I'll read you the first four verses. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So how are these people described? Well, first... They are described as being sealed. And we just learned from Ephesians that all God's people are sealed with the Holy Spirit when they place their faith and trust in Jesus. Secondly, those 144,000 are described as followers of the Lamb. And in John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
These sealed are called those who are redeemed. And in Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Who are the redeemed? Not just ethnic Jews, not just Christian Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike. All the people of God who have placed their trust in Jesus. And then the sealed are also called the first fruits. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, In fact, Christ has raised you from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, all those who belong to Christ. Sealed, followers, redeemed, firstfruits, describing the 144,000 in Revelation and describing all of God's people in Christ everywhere else in Scripture. This is an important argument to be made. And then, of course, the number itself makes a difference because numbers are important in Revelation. And the number, a root number of 144,000 is 12. And then the 12 represents God's people. And Revelation loves 12s. In Revelation 4, there was the 24 elders, which is 12 plus 12. The New Jerusalem is 144 cubits high, which is 12 times 12. And the New Jerusalem will also have 12 gates, which are the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 foundations, which are the 12 apostles of Christ. 12 represents God's people. But 144,000 is, is 12 to many different magnitudes of 10. It's exponentially more than that. And to use these magnitudes of 10 in a Hebrew mindset was to say an unimaginably large number. So when Jesus' followers said, well, how many times should I forgive my Someone who wrongs me seven times, right? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, which means you should always forgive, continue to forgive, put no limit on your forgiveness using exponential numbers to prove that point. So if 12 are the people of God, exponentially large, what are we talking about with 144,000? Are you convinced yet? Here's the most compelling argument. What John saw. Remember, in Revelation 4, John heard that the one who was worthy to open the scroll was the conquering lion of Judah. And then he turned around and didn't see a lion. He saw a lamb. In Revelation 7, John hears the number 144,000, but he turns around and sees something different. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to the Lord our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. We've seen this picture before. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And just as both the lion and the lamb described Jesus in Revelation 4, both the 144,000 and the numberless multitude describe the people of God. I heard and I saw. Both and. Yes. 
The 144,000 are a picture of all believers ready to overcome with a slain lamb in holy war. And here's the whole point. The whole point that the people of God sealed at the start are the ones celebrating with him in the end. The ones sealed at the start are celebrating with him at the end. So what was that question in Revelation 6? Who can stand? Who can stand on that day of judgment? And the answer is the people of God. The people who have the the name of God written on their forehead. The people who are sealed, who are guaranteed. The people who, who are redeemed and who follow and who are the first fruits. Who can stand? Those who God says, I know you by name and you are mine. And when God does move finally and eternally and when he ushers in that end of all things, the people of God have nothing to fear from God. Who can stand? those who trust in Christ. The picture in Revelation 7 at the end is the same as the new heaven and new earth that we find in Revelation 21, where all God's people are with God perfectly and he wipes away every tear from their eyes. And as the music team comes back up, I want to make sure that we too have been given the opportunity to join this number, to have this hope. John asks, who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great trouble. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I'll readily admit, church, that I don't do the bulk of the laundry in my house. But uh, I don't think you make a white robe clean by using blood. That's not, that's not how laundry works. This is rich imagery of of the fact that Jesus, the slain lamb, he wasn't slain just because he was slain for you. His blood was shed for you. It washes you clean. Have you been washed by the blood of the lamb? I always think we have these Christianese phrases that can scare people who aren't used to church. And if you walked in this morning, that was the first thing I said. Have you been washed by the blood of the lamb? You'd be like, I'm never coming back here. (laughs) This place is weird. It might be a cult. But we now know, Revelation gives us what we need to know, that this is about Jesus purifying your soul, wiping you clean, forgiving you for all that you have done and not done. Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? And have you been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Paul makes it easy. When you hear the truth of the good news of Jesus, that he is the lion, that he is the lamb, that his blood is shed for you for this forgiveness, all you need to do is trust and believe in him, and that seal is yours. God says, you are mine. This inheritance is guaranteed to be yours. You will be part of that numberless multitude at the end, praising God forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for being willing to go to the cross. I thank you that as we encounter in Revelation the end of all things over and over and over again, we know that all of it was possible because you shed your blood on the cross. God, I pray that if any of us have been wrestling with suffering in our lives, feeling overwhelmed by the chaos and the brokenness and the suffering we know we still deal with until you come again, God, I pray that they would know today that there is peace to be found in you. God, I pray that if there are any of us that are intimidated and overwhelmed by this idea of judgment, this idea about there being an end, of this idea of what happens next, that we would also know that the people of God have nothing to fear from God. We are sealed, passed over, guaranteed this inheritance by placing our trust in you. 
So God, no matter what the struggle is, today I pray that this, this faith would be wholehearted. It would be genuine. And that you would say, I know you by name. You are mine. We thank you that no matter what this world seems like now, we know that it is headed for its destiny that you have written, that you have guaranteed, that you have secured. And Father, I thank you that you have invited us to inherit that good end with you. Amen. Thank you.